Hey everyone, uh, this is a recording of a Zoom class I gave recently, so check it out. I hope you enjoy. All right, let's see. I'm just going to mute everybody. Um, yeah, so let me just uh, say hi first. First of all, welcome to everybody. Um, some of you are a lot of different kinds of people in the room right now, so it's kind of fun to have, at least for me, I, you, I'm kind of like the uh, common denominator, so it's entertaining for me to sort of see all of you like this. Um, but uh, it's also just nice to see people after being inside of a house for like a week or whatever. Um, so the way this is going to work is, first of all, welcome. And the way this is going to work is I'm going to do like, I think the whole, like the actual talking part will be like 45 minutes or so, maybe 40 minutes. And then we'll do like questions at the end of that. So the whole thing will probably be around an hour. Feel free to pop in and out if you have stuff you need to do or whatever. Um, just like in a real class that I give. I never care if anybody leaves the room. I don't take things personally ever. And uh, if you got to do whatever you got to do, it's easier this format because you can just turn off your video. Um, if you do do something that's personal, make sure to turn off your video because there's been a million memes and videos and clips of people doing things they shouldn't do in front of Zoom meeting cameras, which is hilarious, but probably not for the people doing it. Um, so just a you know background situation there. Um, and so... Yeah, so questions kind of at the end. I'll probably pause once after I do a couple of the introductory concepts to also take any questions. For the questions thing, so we have like 25 people in the room so far. Um, there's like some, there's a feature that you can click on that puts a hand up. Um, so if you wanna ask a question by putting your hand up, you could do that. Uh, if you can't figure out how to do that, then just wave like this and I'll periodically scroll through all the different uh, people that are here. Um, if your camera's not on, then waving won't help. So definitely don't do that. Um, so also there's a chat on the side. So if anybody has any questions they want to just put in the chat, I'll make a note of them as I go and then, uh, and, uh, I'll then try to address them at some point also. Okay. That's basically all of the housekeeping issues. We're good with that. Some nods, thumbs, things like that. All right. So the title of this was, um, coronavirus Hashem searching for himself. Um, coronavirus, obviously, it's kind of self-explanatory, but maybe not as much as we think, so I'm going to do a little bit of, you know, referencing to that also. But the Hashem searching for himself part, um, that's really kind of like, I think, the uh, the background, the backdrop of the entire discussion we're going to have here. And really, it's kind of the backdrop of the entire situation that we're in right now. Um, you know, we kind of look at the situation that we're in a little bit like as if it's a crisis. I'm not negating that. I'm not saying that it's not a crisis in a certain way, but I think it's sort of important to define what a crisis even is and what, like, what they, how they kind of work, because every crisis is the same in terms of the fundamental dynamics of a crisis. And so I think that what I want to do is just sort of first ask the question, what does it mean Hashem is searching for himself? Because I think that when you understand what that means, then you can really clearly know how to deal with what's happening in the world right now and in your own life. And that's really the, the main thing which I want to figure out, you know, aside from answering that question, the main question of this whole talk is sort of to kind of clarify what to do with this situation um, and not just practically, but sort of like how to think about it. Once you kind of know how to think about it, then all of the practicals kind of uh, emanate from that and it gets very, very powerful once you can really do that clearly and you don't get sort of sucked into the different distortions that are going on uh, in our in our lives right now. So that's the main thing. So I want to just introduce a concept and then sort of like a secondary concept. And we're going to build those concepts out a little bit. And once we do that, then we can sort of um, sort of apply them a little more clearly. So the concept, the first main concept is something called Keter. Some of you might have heard of this, depending on the backgrounds of the, everybody in the room here. Um, Keter literally translates as the word crown. 
And it's a concept that shows up in a few different places. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say a few, in like thousands of them. It's really a reference to, we're going to use the word ratzon or the word will. Now, this is going to be a little bit fragmented in the beginning. I got to sort of lay out a couple things for you. But then as we kind of go a little forward, so then you're going to start to see how the puzzle pieces click together. And then it'll, uh, it'll start to really make a lot of sense. So the concept of keter, so it's sort of like, you, like when, we say, when I sort of say it's the same thing as the concept of ratzon, so ratzon means will. Now, will is a funny thing. If you actually look at a person, so anytime you do anything, you do this, when you're making food in the microwave, you're cooking, whatever you're, you know, getting dressed or saying pajamas, whatever you're doing, all of your actions start at this root place, kind of like all the way at the top of the system that we call a person. So like, you know, we have things that we do with our bodies. We have um, feelings that we feel. We have th thoughts that we think. But kind of behind all of that, is what we call the ratzon. It's like what you're interested in, what your will is, what your passion is, what you're looking for. Like you could even think of it as your impulse, like your just basic impulse to do, to be, to think, to act, to be anything. So underneath everything is this thing called the ratzon. It's also the same thing as the concept of keter. Now when I'm talking about keter here though, so we can understand the concept of keter by looking at ourselves. You can look at the way you're structured, how you do things by kind of just, um, you know, trying to trying to deeply get in touch with what it is that you do. As an example, um, when you decide to go make lunch, so you obviously have this willpower to go do that. Now, that will can come from a combination of things. You might say, well, I feel hungry in my stomach, so now I'm going to go make lunch. And you think, well, what's driving me, my willpower to make lunch stems from the fact that I'm hungry. But actually, the fact that you're hungry, the sensation of hunger in your stomach is like a sensation. It's a stimulus that comes from your body. And then when the stimulus reaches your consciousness, then you say, okay, now I want to activate my will on purpose to go and make lunch. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a specific decision. Now, that decision sometimes happens by habit. You don't, maybe you don't always realize you're making that decision. But what you're actually doing is you're making a decision. There's like a stimulus that happens. And then you say, oh, I feel hungry in my stomach. I'm going to now get up and go and make lunch. Now, one of the ways you know that it's an active decision is because you don't just haphazardly go to the fridge to start filling your mouth with whatever's in the fridge. You actually make like, an, it's like a little bit of like an art, what you do. You actually go and take a bunch of ingredients and you use your willpower to then construct a plan. And you say, okay, well, here's what I'm gonna do with these ingredients. I'm gonna build them together into a dish. And then when you do that, so then ultimately the result, which could be a half hour or an hour later, is your actual lunch. So it's not just like this immediate like stimulus. I feel hungry and I'm gonna go just go put things in my mouth so they go into my stomach so I stop feeling hungry. There's like a whole plan that you build after the stimulus kicks in. And that is all a function of your ratzon. It's the will that's underneath all the things. So the actual thinking that you do to plan out and the different actions you take to actually build your lunch. So those are all essentially rooted in one primal will that's behind all of that, which is now the will to eat. So that same concept of, of keter, it's called keter, it's also called ratzon, but like you actually operate as an analogy for the way that Hashem also, or I should say you also operate the way that Hashem set himself up to operate. So if we want to understand sort of like things that are going on in the world, we have to start to unpack, well, how does Hashem kind of do things? How is the world structured? Like, how does Hashem interact with the world? Like, sort of like a little bit like, who is Hashem? And like, what's he kind of doing here? So we have to sort of work backwards, though, because we start from ourselves, and we start to first understand carefully what it is that we do, then we can reverse engineer kind of like what Hashem is doing as he is making stuff happen in existence. So if we reverse engineer what I just said, so you could think of it as like, well, you use use willpower, you use your ratzon, you use your keter in many, many, many different ways all the time. And so just like you do that, it's very diverse, right? You make lunch one time, you go take a shower another time, you, 
I don't know, you write an essay a different time, like whatever it is that you're doing, these are all expressions of your ratzon. So those are all very diverse expressions, and every activity you do always uses your ratzon. So Hashem also has that same tool, and when I say again, I kinda, I'm kind of messing up the language, really you are the one who also has it. Hashem kind of had it first, and then you're sort of set up to, to have the same tool that you then use in a parallel way. So think about how Hashem uses it. Well, you have like this setting full of all kinds of things that are happening. And what's happening in the setting is that Hashem is essentially using that same Keter, his Keter now, his Ratzon, to now manifest all kinds of things. And that's all very well and good. And so you look around at all the diversity that you see. There's plants, there's trees, there's stuff, there's people. There's all kinds of things happening. There's viruses. You name the thing that's happening. And those are things that are in some way extensions of Hashem's actual Ratzon, the root will that's underneath all of this. So... Point one so far, there's something called Keter and Ratzon, and what that kind of means is you want to sort of tap into that experientially for yourself to sort of know it on the inside of you. The way to do that is to sort of think of examples of things that you're activating, and then try to almost like climb up your thoughts all the way to where they start and be like, oh, at the very root of that, I have some underlying Ratzon that's driving me to do X, Y, or Z things that I'm now deciding to do based on that will. Okay, so that's point one. But here's something that's a little bit deeper than this. See, in a lot of the, the Kabbalah writings that we have, for example, if anybody, if anybody wants to check out some of the writings, by the way, an amazing, amazing essay by somebody named the Ramak, Ramosha Cordovero. He has a book called The Pardes Rimonim. Pardes Rimonim, in the third section, Shar Gimel, the whole first like few essays that he has there are literally about this concept and how you have a structure of will that essentially is almost like it's organized in a hierarchy. So I want to just sort of show you what that means. And, and, and just to, again, from, from the learning side, for those who want to check that out, strongly recommend it's a great, great series of essays. So what I want to sort of show you now is something called a, sort of like a, a unifying theme that's sort of like behind all of the different will forces or powers or expressions that Hashem uses. And you also have that. In other words, just like Hashem has that, you have that. So you have a very diverse expression of your will. And then sort of behind all of that, there is this one, like, root will, one root ratzon. There's this one thing that you want more than all the other things, not just more than, but like almost behind all the other things. And everything else that you want and that you do is kind of like an outgrowth or an extension of that, like, root thing. And it's an interesting thing to ask yourself, by the way. Like, if you ask yourself, well, what do I actually want in life? What do I want? And like, you know, there are some things that you could answer. If you try writing this down, it gets very interesting very quickly. So you'll write some things like, you know, I don't know, I want, uh, I want to feel happy. I want food. I want to feel like I, I'm, I want to feel, I want, I want wealth. I want to have somebody who loves me. I want to love somebody else. I want to have kids. I want, like, you could write down a million different things. And all those things, when you kind of look at the big picture of all of them, try to figure out like, what's the theme? Like, kind of like, what's the picture of all that? Like, that's kind of like behind. Like, if you could just sort of sum all that up, and sort of say what you actually want underneath all of that. Each of those things is kind of just like an expression of that one thing that you really want. But these are all kind of like step-down versions. Like it's like there's the one thing you really want, and then the way to get what you really want is through expressing all these other things. So it's kind of like, obviously, you let's say if you want to have love in your life, so you also are going to have to eat food. Because if you're dead because you didn't eat anything, it's going to be very hard to have love. People don't usually have a good time trying to either give love or receive love when they're no longer, when their bodies are no longer functioning. So you have to eat food. So then you say, well, the reason I want food is because I want to be alive and I want to be alive because I want love. So, you know, th these things are all connected and you can start to build a chain connecting all the things that you want, all the different ratzones, little ratzone bubbles, and you can start to link them together. And underneath all of them, there's one thing that you want that's behind everything. It's a very, very serious question to ask yourself to try to figure out in a genuine way what you actually want like that. Very, very tough thing to figure out.
but I will I will give a little uh, a little caveat throw in hint there is that every human being seems uh, at the deepest point to actually want the same thing. And we're gonna have to figure out what that is a little bit so we can understand um, what we're going what we what we're talking about with Hashem. So let's just go over to Hashem for a second, and we're gonna give this root wanting on the Hashem side of things a name. Now the name we're gonna give is a conceptual name. It's a name that shows up in a lot of our writings. Some, like I mentioned, the Ramak is one place. You could see a lot of the writings of the Ramchal. There's a lot of Midrashim that quote this type of concept. The name of the root wanting that's behind all of the diverse wantings that you see in the world around you in terms of Hashem's way of doing things is something called Adam Kadmon. Adam Kadmon. So Adam from the word Adam means like a person, a man, and Kadmon means like the first, like the primordial, the, the original, the original man, Adam Kadmon. And so this is like a, it's a funny thing. So just, just as an example, one place where this shows up, there's a book called Sefer Yechezkel. It's in uh, the Tanakh. And there's a, the very first section of that book is actually kind of like a, it's one of the last Nevi'im um, that ever lived. And a Navi means a prophet, someone who has this ability to access extreme high consciousness encounters with the larger consciousness that is behind all being that we call Hashem. And so when he went, so Yechezkel is kind of like experiencing this Nevuah, and it describes the levels of consciousness that he actually is able to access as he goes through the stages of Nevuah. Today, when we do something called tefillah, people like to call that davening, prayer. These are all kind of just, you know, not really such great words to describe real tefillah. But we're trying to actually access at least the very beginning of the process that Yechezkel describes in that section. So what he really describes, one of the, one of the kind of like the apex, the, the pinnacle of the process that he describes, is that at the very end of the process, he sees this, this outline, a shape of a man. And it's like he kind of goes through all these layers of existence, of perception, and then he sees at the very top of it, there's like a man... And that man is, is, is a tzurat adam, a shape of an adam. And that's sort of like the, the top of the process of nevuah that he describes. And that adam right there is what we are referring to when we talk about this concept called adam kadmon. The adam that is kind of like behind everything. And the question is, well, what exactly is that? Like, it's kind of like, if that's the root thematic, you know, total wanting, that's what Hashem wants. Behind all the diverse things that you see in Hashem's expression of his ratzon, that's what Hashem wants. This thing called Adam Kadmon, well, it's probably going to be helpful for us to figure out what exactly that's talking about and then how that sort of plays out in the world. Now, the reason why that's super helpful is because if you can understand what somebody wants at their root, then you can figure out everything about them. It's like a crazy phenomenon. See, like when you see a person and they're making lunch, if you're sensitive to the fact that everything that a person does is sort of like an outgrowth of underlying deeper wantings, going all the way back to the root thing that people want, all the way at the beginning, so then when you're, when, when you're sensitive to that, then you can watch a person do something and you can extrapolate from what they're doing and how they're doing it so much more about what's going on underneath. You can deduce like a huge amount of information that way. And the reason is because you can't help but broadcast what it is that you really want through the things that you say, through the way that you behave, the way that you do anything. Like you just do it. You don't even realize you're doing it. So if you're a person who fundamentally wants to be, I don't know, let's say you want, I'll give, I'll give one crazy example. Let's say you want to be loved. Let's say that's what you really want. But you've also been hurt many times. You got hurt a lot of times. You, you tried to be loved. It didn't work out. You, you got rejected a lot. You got cheated on. You got betrayed. So many different ways that, you know, the trust that you tried to develop with somebody else was broken. And then you essentially, so you, 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 were, you, you wanted that, but you also were, you failed in that so many times. Or you feel like other people failed you. So then what happens is 
that now you have this, the way that you're going to sort of express yourself, we'll, we'll, we can feel that in you. You, ever, you. you can even try to imagine a person who went through that. It's, you'll, you'll end up being very raw. There'll be like a lot of like sensitivity, kind of like maybe you'll be a little bit quick to anger. You'll be very nervous. You won't want to open up easily. You'll be very, you'll hold, you'll hold yourself back sometimes. Like all kinds of behavior patterns that are kind of stemming from this combination of what you really want. You really want to be loved at some level. And then you also experience all this pain. And so if you see somebody and you actually are thinking deeply, well, based on the way they're behaving right now, like it kind of is a little strange. Like it doesn't exactly, I don't understand why they're behaving this way. If you start thinking about the different things that maybe they went through or that they want on the inside and you sort of read that into what's happening, you can give you a lot of insight into possibilities of things that are going on in the person's life. So there was actually a situation that happened uh, a while ago. Someone came to speak to me about something and I, I uh, they said something like, um, they said something about how there was something in their life that was really, that they, they felt they were just not happy in their life. They had nothing in their life that made them happy. I think that was the line. And they were kind of like describing, like, I do this, I learn, I have friends, I go out sometimes, but I just don't feel happy about anything. I just feel like everything is not happy. And so we were talking about it. And, you know, at first I was trying to think to like suggest maybe good tactics, how to actually start to feel happier. And then I was like, this whole picture that, that this person is painting, like what he's saying doesn't really add up for me. It's like, I don't really get how somebody could feel that way. There's something underneath here that's going on. And so I just said to him, I was like, I was like, I feel like what's really happening here is like, there's someone that you are interested in on a love level. And like, they're not interested in you. And you're just, uh, that's why you're, you just feel like your life is empty because of that. And he was like, that's crazy. He's like, I didn't want to tell you that because like he felt very, very vulnerable and didn't want to share that. But he's like, so I said, I was like, if you wouldn't, if you didn't tell me that, then like, how am I supposed to answer any of your questions? I can't talk to you about what's actually going on if you're hiding the thing which is the most important. And that's the, that's the thing here is like, if, you, if you're talking to somebody, you can sort of listen for what's all the way behind, like the root wanting that's there. And so the point is like the root wanting kind of bleeds through everything that you do. Like whatever it is that you genuinely want the most, it's going to always sort of shine out. And, and the way that you are is so much louder than what you say, always. So it's very important to sort of pay attention to that. So that's why it's also super important to know what Hashem wants at that level, because reality is actually bleeding that out all the time. Like just like a person does that, you bleed out what you really want from your, from just from your pores. So reality does exactly the same thing as that constantly. And then the question is, well, what exactly is reality bleeding out? Because if you're not, if you're not aware of the underlying wantings, you don't know that they exist, then you can't read them. You can't sense that they're coming through. So you have to sort of know what that is. So I just want to, give one example of like how this deep wanting of Hashem sort of plays out as we develop it a little bit and can we use this as an example to sort of help develop it. So I like to ask this question whenever I teach um, Parshas Bereshis, the first section of the Torah, uh, the first Parsha, Genesis. Um, I like to ask this question. The, the Torah starts with this line. It says, Bereshit bara Elohim et It says in the beginning, like the first thing, so Elohim kind of creates, can, we're not going to really de like define these words right now, but kind of creates the heavens and the earth. Okay, Elohim creates them. And I always ask, I ask groups, I'm like, what is the biggest possible question you could ask about this sentence? Like the biggest question in the whole sentence. Some people will say things like, well, what does Elohim mean? How do you create something? Like what exactly is heavens and the earth? All kinds of things like that. And I'm like, no, the question is even before that. Like forget the, like, forget the, the different things that are mentioned in the sentence. The question is so big that it's like before the sentence even starts is this question. And I'm sure some of you are already thinking of it. Um, it's kind of hard to do question answer in a Zoom setting. Um, but like, it's basically like the way this, the line, the, the, like if you're reading a regular book and it says in the beginning, there's this character, a Lokim, and he creates this thing. The immediate question you'd have is like, what is the context here? The real question is why? Like, why is this even happening? There's like this story is starting to unfold and we have no idea what the story is for. 
Like, we don't know what the context is of the story. We don't know what it's doing. We don't know where it's going. We don't know what the story is trying to go towards. There's no direction to this. It's kind of like, there's a character. He creates this thing. And then it's like, here we go. And then the story just continues. And you don't know what the purpose of the story is. So that question is so huge. It's like, it's, it's just not even in the text. It's like before the text even starts. Like, if you're writing a book, you got to think, like, what's the book about? When I prepared this talk, I was like, what is this talk about? And I, and I give you a heads up in the beginning. Here's what we're going to try to talk about. So like the book doesn't do that, though. The Torah doesn't actually give you a heads up in the beginning. It just kind of rolls into it and assumes that you know. And the reason why it assumes that you know is because the answer is so integral to the story that it bleeds out of everything that's going on. Like if you read the story and you extrapolate literally sentence by sentence, the story is constantly telling you to the point that you have a Gemara and uh, like 10 different Zohars and all these different Midrashim that all read this story and they all say this line that we actually say on Friday night in the davening that we say in, in this, this uh, poem of L'Chadodi that was only composed a few hundred years ago. The line is, Sof which means like the end of the story, the end of the actions that happen, the end of the story tells you like what the original point of the whole story was. Everybody got that? Sof it's like the end of the story. You can figure out from where the story concludes why the story even happened to begin with. And what's happening is people are reading the story 2,000, 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, and they're seeing like all these patterns and themes. They're looking at the story as an expression, just like I said before. If someone watches you doing all kinds of things, expressing, your, expressing yourself into the world, they can track what you're doing. They can then try to figure out how to organize that information and figure out why you're doing it at the very root. You have to track all the information carefully, obviously. But people can do that with other people. We do that all the time. That's what detectives do. Do that with Hashem. If you're a Torah detective, then you read the Torah like that and you figure out piece by piece by piece by piece what the story is doing. And you organize all that. And then you get to this point where now you're like, oh, here's the root concept. And that's where Adam Kadmon comes in because the story essentially has this assumption that Adam Ka that Adam is like the point of it. Now, I don't just mean Adam like the person in the story. I mean, whatever Adam Kadmon is, that's somehow the root of this whole thing. So I want to just unpack for you a little bit. We're going to have to skip some steps here because we can't really do all of the analysis of the text. Um, but just to sort of unpack for you briefly what the concept of Adam Kadmon actually looks like. So there's a medrash which describes how it's in Parshat Barishas also. It describes how what Hashem's kind of doing is he designs everything in existence over time through a process of unfolding towards ultimately what we call human beings. It's slightly different from this type of human being, kind of a more advanced version, which is a, kind of a side topic for us right now. Um, but basically he designs the whole thing for that. And the very end of the process of the design is that now there is this creature that we call Adam. Now here's the thing though, that's a very popular medrash. I've, I think I learned that when I was like 10 years old and it was like, yeah, like Hashem, you know, we were the, we were the, the pinnacle, the, eight, the, the ending point of the whole story. And that's because human beings are so special and important. But what no one really bothered to do for me for a long, long time was explain to me what exactly is it about human beings that actually makes them what they are. Like, it's really not so much talked about. I mean, it's, there's a lot of, there's some debates, there's some philosophy discussions, there's a lot of different books you could read that try to kind of talk about this somewhat. I would call most of the ones that I've read in my explorations have been kind of dancing around what it actually is, it seems like, at least to me. Um, but what seems to be going on is that like, the, the, whatever it means to be a human being, that's what the story is about. It's like we're unfolding this long story driving towards this creature called a human being. And then what we really call that is actually an Adam. And so now let's just sort of assess what exactly an Adam and Adam Kadmon actually is. So 
when Hashem kind of goes through this process to actually generate this human being, so you could think of it as like the very first ratzon that he has, right? Like we said, if you want to generate something, you want to make something happen, you have ratzon. So like there's like later ratzons, like, you know, making lunch or whatever. Hashem makes birds and whatnot, all these things. But the original, like the root ratzon behind all of it, this thing that we call Adam Kadmon, what it means is that what Hashem was trying to do was he was trying to generate some kind of version of himself that was going to sort of be, on the one hand, of himself, and yet at the same time be very drastically different. I'm going to give you exactly the difference that it is. Some of you already know kind of where this part's going to go a little bit, I assume. Hopefully you remember things that we discussed in the past. If you don't, then you're about to remember now. Um, but what Hashem kind of did was, you could think of it as he took himself and then he sort of just literally punched himself in the mouth, like the Gemara says in Maseches Nida, he punched himself in the mouth, forgot everything about himself, and then sort of just shoved that version of himself that forgot who he is into a setting where he could now struggle to find the rest of himself that he had forgotten. That's what Hashem did. Again, he took himself, it's like regular guy, and then he sort of punched punch himself in the face, forgot everything about who he actually is, and then put himself into a setting where now he is going to be able to struggle to figure out, to remember, to come back to who he really is. Okay, so that's the original point of the whole setting that Hashem started with. Adam is a creature that is actually this, you can think of it as like a, a, a version of Hashem that has this program in his head. The program kind of blocks him from remembering the rest of himself. And he's like, he wakes up and he's like, how did I get here? Like, who am I? What is this place? And then as he kind of starts to interact with existence, he starts to experience things, and then those experiences start to kind of impact him in different ways. And some of them, they pull him this way, some of them, they pull him that way. And so he's constantly looking for things. But if you go back to the Gemara I mentioned a second ago, when Hashem punches Adam in the, punches himself in the face and forgets who he is, so what, what the Gemara sort of describes, and there's other writings that sort of describe this more at length, is that there's like this residue. In other words, like, even though he forgot who he is, there's like this residual memory that is kind of just in the back of his head, like he just can't quite see it, he just feels it a little bit, and it's kind of in the background, and he just sort of always feels a little bit like it's like he's looking for himself, there's like, there's a sense of like, anytime you do anything, it's like, oh, either this is like, kind of fits, like I feel like this is right for me, it makes sense for me, or it's like, no, 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 that's, that's not really me, that doesn't fit me, and like, you know, it's just funny, you come to this place as a blank slate with these kinds of embedded, built-in feelings, like, there are certain things that you just feel like, oh, I just hate this. Or I just don't, I don't really resonate with that. I connect more to this kind of person, not that kind of person. Like all those types of sensations are kind of coming from the back. And it's like, you just sort of feel them from almost nowhere. That's what we're talking about here. That like what Hashem's kind of doing is he took himself, knocked himself out, put him in the setting, put himself in the setting. And now he has like this background, very vague memory. And he's sort of always moving towards that. And so the thing is, there's a lot more details to how that process takes place and sort of what it means. But the point is like the background of the whole setting that you are in right now. See, you have to sort of know a little bit, a little bit about who you are to understand the place that you're in. Because we very often, we, the way that we're designed, our bodies, our skin, our organs, like everything about our sensory nervous system tells us, well, this is me and that's you. And we are just separate beings and separate creatures. But the Torah's description of what you are is actually way, way past that. It actually describes it much more as you are somehow like this fragment of Hashem's self, Hashem's consciousness, which is not measurable, not physical, not tangible. You can't see it at all, 
but it's like tethered to a body in this way that we don't understand. And then somehow it just operates here and does things. And that's what this whole place is about. It's all about Hashem sort of like creating a setting for all these different fragments of himself to sort of remember over time who they actually are. That's the point of the setting. And again, there's so many steps I need to skip here, but I just want to put the Adam Kadmon concept out there. What I'm trying to say is the purpose of the setting is you, but you're not what you think you are. You're not just like, you know, I could say it this way. I could say, well, the point of this whole place is you. And Hashem just wanted to give you lots of good things. And then it's like, well, why do bad things happen? It's like, not, doesn't make sense. Like, well, then we could say, well, sometimes bad things are actually good things somehow. Who knows? Like, you know, could be good somehow later. Like, that's a super shallow way of talking about this. Like, what's actually happening is like, the you that you think you are is not what you are. You're not just you and Hashem is sort of over there separate from you. Like what Hashem is doing is he's literally taking a part of himself, or you could just think of it as taking himself actually, and now he's putting himself into a setting that forces himself to actually sort of figure himself out and remember who he really is. So that's a very tricky type of thing to, to, to encounter as a concept, and it's a very profound concept because it starts to really impact and bleed out into everything that's going on in your life. But I wanted to sort of take a couple of implications of that concept to sort of show how this plays out. So the main one is to sort of understand that like we, we like every, every time period in history, there's different ways that we fail to remember who we are. And then we struggle and get hit by different crises that shove us towards, you know, the, a deeper, a deeper awareness of this. So I want to just sort of highlight a few different examples of, of what's going on today. A really big one. Um, we happen to live in a time period where, and this is obviously something which is so hard to say and so hard to even hear because it's just like, it's so counter how we emotionally feel and what we believe and what we expect. But we live in a time period where the concept of death is viewed almost as like a non-entity. It's like, we know it's out there. We know it comes. Some of us feel it more often than others. Some of us have had an, an encounter with death in a, in a way that's more extreme than others of us. But like on the whole, the perspective and assumption of the, at least the first world countries in the world in, his, in today's historical framework is that death is something which is like not ideal and really shouldn't like it's, it's not, not just not ideal. It's like it's foreign. It's like, yeah, of course, death happens, but like it doesn't happen here. It happens over there. And like we can expect to live like a long life. Of course, there's tragedies and things happen. But like overall, the expectation and assumption is that like that there is just supposed to be a long life and a long runway of life. And again, I want to say this very sensitively because it's a very hard thing to sort of say and it's a hard thing to realize. But like, that's something which we are attached to purely because of the circumstances of history that we live in now. And I'll just give a contrast to that. Like, just one example, um, literally like 70 years ago before we had antibiotics, lifespans were significantly shorter. People would die from all kinds of diseases all the time. And it was sort of like, it was a norm. I'll give just one, one, you know, story. My grandfather. So I used to have. I, I have. I have. Um, there's. I have three aunts and uncles. Meaning my on my father's side, that's my father, and then three siblings. And there was a fourth sibling, and she passed away when she was five years old. And at the time when it happened, this was in in the 40s, I think it was. And it was a crazy situation, obviously, but like crazy for me when I first found out about it, because there were pictures of her at my grandparents' house in Israel. And I was just like, I was like, what do you mean? I had another aunt that I just didn't know about. That's, that's wild. And like, no, we didn't even know where she was buried for a long time. Cause my grandparents were so like, it was so hard for them, but like they didn't, they, you know, they didn't want to, they didn't ever really wanted to talk about it. But like my grandfather told the story of like when it actually happened. So his, his mother, my great grandmother. So she, she would ask him like, oh, where is this daughter? Her name was Miriam. 
and um and and like when she was sick in the beginning so like so basically my like my grandmother asked and he's like oh she can't come whatever he, he kind of blew her off and then like after she passed away so he continued to blow her off he's like oh no she can't come she can't come whatever and he just never told her that she passed away he didn't tell his own mother this and he says that after his after a few times of that where they just didn't bring her the grandmother just stopped asking because she understood because it was like that was just a given it was like if you had five kids you lost two of them if you had 10 kids you lost five of them like it was just like how things were and so the reason I'm saying that is not because I'm not trying to make it like more scary in terms of death or anything like that. What I'm trying to sort of highlight is that the historical framework that you live in creates what you experience as norms. But the thing is that those norms are just circumstantial. They're not real. And it's like the, there's only there are certain things that are always real and always normal. And that's the things that the Torah is mapping out for us. It describes and I don't mean it like in a religious sense, like the Torah describes that you are always an endless self that you are using this body for a particular phase of time. And that, and during that phase, you're on a particular like journey and road to sort of more and more deeply encounter the truth of who you are, which is that you're not even just you. You're actually an, an aspect of a much larger truth. And your job is to sort of like not get so attached to any particular aspect of your like character that you're playing, then you start to actually accidentally block out the real you. Your job is to sort of be a channel to bring more and more and more consciousness of Hashem and just consciousness really, which is the same thing as that, into the world. And when you sort of get attached to your body, or you get attached to like certain aspects of your particular historical framework, then it causes distortions because now you start thinking, wait, I'm not here to be part of that larger story, like the history, his story. I'm not, I'm not here to be part of that. I'm just here to do my thing. And what's, well, what's my thing? Well, first of all, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. Like, I don't ever want to go from here. And not only that, but like, I like the way my body looks. So I always want to like, look this way. I want to always be young or I want to like, you know, I'm going to constantly try to stay fit so I can get like, and again, it's not bad to do any of those things. It's that when you start doing those kinds of things from a place of intense attachment to your character, then those things get in the way of who you really are and you'll feel it. When you get too attached to your body in some way and aspects of your body or your sense of humor or your looks or, you know, or just being alive and you get so attached to those things, then it starts to become, it creates anxiety. It's like, oh, I don't want to die. I don't want anything to happen to me. So I start to feel more like, well, I don't know how to stop it. I can't control those things. They're just out of my control. And of course they're out of your control. They're not your problem. That was never your problem. It was, those were never things that were supposed to be yours to control in the first place. Hashem sort of took an aspect of himself put it here to now struggle to overcome whatever things came its way. And your job is to sort of remember that. And then whatever comes to you, you're like, well, that's what's supposed to happen because like I'm supposed to use whatever comes to me as a now a greater opportunity to now sort of overcome and struggle to remember more and more deeply who I actually am. That's why I'm here. But instead we start to, we start to exchange and sort of trade off. We say, well, that's, I know that's kind of why I'm here, but like what I really want to do is I don't want to die or I don't, I don't want to get sick. I don't want to get hurt. I don't want anything bad to happen to me. I don't want to lose things that I like about my life and I don't want to lose people that I like. I don't want to lose people that I love. And we get attached to different parts of the character and then we forget the real journey. And those things, those distortions, they really cause us to trip and sort of fall and get stalled. And then what happens is you get, this, you get these situations where now something will change in your life you're, the road will suddenly drastically swerve because it always does. Like it's, it always does. In this particular case, what's notable about the coronavirus situation is just that it's so widespread. The road is swerving for everyone. But if you pay, if you're paying attention, it's so fascinating how it impacts each person so differently according to their own particular problem. In other words, whatever it is that you're attached to in a way that's a little bit unhealthy, this is going to force you to struggle with that. And then you, like the, the, the way to sort of work with this is to sort of realize, wait, like the things that I always expected are supposed to be a certain way 
well, why did I even expect that? Where did those Where did those ideas come from? And then I'll just so I'll just give you sort of one one example to sort of start to wrap this up. The Gemara Maseches Brochos, I think it's like Daftes Daftches. Um, it's uh, the Gemara there. The Talmud talks about how there is something called Yisurin. And I mentioned this in a video I made recently um, about the coronavirus. Yisurin is a concept which means things that move you. It's from the word lasur. Lasur means to, to change your path. So people very often translate Yisurin as things which, are, which make you suffer. But the word Yisurin does not mean things that make you suffer. They happen to sometimes make you suffer because anything which is a change in your path is going to sort of change the direction that you expect it to go on. And then, yeah, you're going to feel pain because you're like, but I really wanted to go there. And it's like, well, nobody really asked you. Because you're not really just you. You're part of a much larger story. You yourself are like a thousand times bigger than you even imagine that you are. You're so much more than you even remember. And so you're kind of like, you're getting attached to certain things. And that's okay, because we make those mistakes. But like, now it's sort of like you're getting shifted to help you remember who you really are to do the things you really need to be doing at a higher level. So the Gemara says that there's, there's like three different kinds of responses you can have to Yisurin. The first one, it says, well, if you experience some kind of Yisurin, things that move you, then you got to start looking at your life and figure out like, well... What kind of choices am I making? Like, am I too attached to anything in my life in a way that's distorted or unhealthy where I'm starting to confuse who I am with who I, who I wish I was or who I am with, like, the character that I'm playing? That's, that's the first option. If you go through that and then you figure out that, like, pretty much overall you have pretty good perspectives, the Gemara then says, well, that means that what you, what you're, what you need to look at next is, are you learning enough Torah? But we don't, again, we don't mean learning Torah like, are you doing religious learning Torah so you can be, like, room or be like just like because you're just supposed to go through the motions it means are you learning true ideas that the Torah describes at a level that is now going into your thoughts where you're actually starting to see the world more truthfully because if you look at it it's going first on the level of your actions and your feelings like look at your way of life are you distorted in any way and then it's like well what kinds of things are you thinking and then like let's go deeper into there and let's see if the things that you're thinking are true because we get a lot a lot a lot of confused ideas in addition to our true ideas. And it's hard to sift through them and figure out what it is that we're thinking. And then the Gemara ends off and says, but if both of those things, you uh, you don't see that you really need to change anything in the way you're doing it and you're not being swerved towards them, the Gemara says it's called Yisurin Shel Ahava. It means things that are just moving you towards greater Ahava with Hashem. What does it mean, Ahava? So very often we think that Ahava means just like, that it's you know we translate it as love. And we say, well, love is an emotion. It's a feeling that we have. But Ahava actually means a state of being in oneness in connection with somebody else to the point where you where you you sort of say me and this other person when we're together we're more than we are when we're apart and by becoming together we kind of we upgrade and augment and kind of access more and more that larger self that we really are that we've forgotten about that's what ahava really is about and so if you if you're if your basic level of life your practical way of, li of living is like pretty much on track and you're thinking true things then anything which causes you to swerve is just a, is just like a really strong power to just drive you towards greater ahava with Hashem. And that's really what I'm trying to do with this whole talk, which is like, if I can sort of show you who you are and sort of show you like who Hashem is and that you're really just, you're not just, but you're an aspect of that, like the much larger you that you're sort of over time returning to, that you're really a part of that larger self that we call Hashem. So then when I sort of say, okay, so use the crisis to do those three things in ascending order. Like at first, you know, that's what we're all being forced to do. Look at your life. Like, which things am I kind of doing in ways that are a little bit um, unnecessary or silly? Like, as an example, I went to a wedding a few days ago that is a Jewish wedding, which uh, didn't have any sushi, didn't have, like, you know, any, any giant, like, giant food areas. There were no tables. It was literally what the Gemara describes. 
It says there was just, there was Kedushin, and there was Nisuin, and there was a cup of wine, and there was a guy and a girl and 10 people there to sort of witness as a, on the societal level. And I was like, I just went to the first real wedding of my life. This is the first time I was at a real wedding. It's crazy. And it's, and it's not that it's bad to have all those other things. It's that when you forget that those other things are extra and they're not part of the actual truth of what Kedushin and Nisuin even is. Because what is Kedushin and Nisuin? When you're so busy with all the extra things, so we just think, well, what's Kedushin and Nisuin? It's just getting married because we're in love and that's what marriage is. We don't have that in the Torah. Kedushin and Nisuin is a profound concept, two profound concepts that are way more than that. Like crazy how much more and that's how, it's, it's just so distorted. So I went to the first real wedding, that was on the practical level, and then it's like, okay, well, what kinds of things am I thinking about? Do I spend my day thinking a lot about Torah? Not so much. Like, how much am I thinking about these concepts? Am I thinking about other things, things on Netflix or whatever is kind of going on in my head in the background? Because it's like, I just don't have enough going on. I don't have anything to do. That's kind of going towards the next level of trying to learn Torah and thinking real things. But then after all that's over, you're just left with one last thing. It's like, you're by yourself. You're in your house all the time. You know, even when you're with your family, there's like so much isolation going on and people are like, you know, they even need space from each other because there's just too much of like, you know, your family, your kids, your parents, whatever it is. And then it's just you. And it's like, just me. And this is crazy. I'm being forced to be just by myself. And it's like, you know, who am I even? Like now that all those other things are gone, I'm just left with just me. And it's like, what's my, what's my being here? Like, what does it even mean that I'm someone? And like, it's, you know, unfortunately, we don't have access to like higher level Torah concepts. Those thoughts just sort of hang out in the background and they give us a little bit of anxiety. It's like, uh, who am I? But then it's like, I don't know how to even answer that. But when you learn the Torah and you also know some of the deeper concepts and we share all these types of ideas, it gives you raw material to work with. It's like, you are not just you. You're part of something that's way bigger. And so the upshot of all this and the kind of the, the final point here is that there, the, in the Torah's kind of like perspective, I don't want to say this in a way that's, that's harsh, but it's kind of like in a way that's sort of encompassing maybe is a better word. The crises are only crises if you experience them that way. In other words, you kind of have a choice. If you're constantly investing and you're constantly trying to find the distortions and find the ways that you're too attached to different aspects of your character and you start to separate yourself a little bit from like the norms of your historical time period and start to see these things are just circumstantial and these things are really true always. If you're always doing that, then when an unusual situation happens, you're not surprised. You're not thrown off like you'll have to figure out on a decision level making decision making level what to do but you're not going to just be like oh my gosh everything's falling apart i don't know what to do i'm panicking you will never panic because it's like well i'm not this character to the extent that now i need to be like what's going to happen who's going to die i'm going to die other people that i love like it's like the whole way of thinking about all of this is so different now i just want to make one last caveat there i just want to stress that you can't just like stare death in the face and just be like it's not a thing, okay? You can't do that. Um, the tricky part about what I'm saying here, which I, again, there's so many avenues that we have to develop to really uh, like sort of take this to where it really needs to go, is like, you have to answer questions like, well, what exactly is death? And like, and what exactly are we? Like, okay, fine. So you sort of just told us that we're like, we're a fragment, an aspect of Hashem's self. And like, so now I understand that I'm more than just me. I'd also, you know, you could even ex express it this way. Like, that's really what it means to be humble, to realize that like, I'm not just me, everything that I have, kind of comes from something that's bigger than me. I'm a channel for that. That's what it means to be Anav. Like, but when push comes to shove, like what exactly am I? And what is that then? So what I tried to do now was enough damage to the perspective of like, you know, that you're just a certain way to sort of help you peel back and pull away a little bit from like what it is that we're so used to and give you some tools. But again, it's such a huge discussion that this is really only like a, an introduction. But again, so I just, I'm saying specifically the death part because 
I, just like each of you, I'm sure each of us has had experiences where we've encountered death in different forms, sometimes more directly than others, and it's super painful. And I'm not saying that like, oh, just because we live nowadays, so it hurts, but like it never, it didn't used to hurt. It always hurt. And death is like, a, it's, a, it's a tremendous curse that God willing one day soon will be gone. And, you know, it's a longer discussion of what exactly the role of death is in existence and in the Chumash and how it sort of, at first it didn't exist and it sort of came into the picture and why did it come into the picture and what is it even what happens in the Torah's view when your body turns off and your consciousness is now freed from the body. It's like a whole huge discussion, unfortunately also very under underrepresented and under-discussed. So instead we kind of get stuck with ideas like there's heaven in the sky and when, you're, when you die you go there, which is completely not, nothing to do with Torah. Um, it's sort of like a mass perversion of Torah concepts taken to a very shallow place. But the short point about that is just like, there is so much more to talk about here. And these things are all answerable and real. And when you start to sort of see how they work, you're like, oh, that's what death is. And like, that makes so much sense. And like, that's so real. And then it's like, it's so much, like on the one hand, it's like frightening because it's a little bit unknown, but it's so like, at the same time, so heartening. Like, you know, it's something which is, which is able to be dealt with in a very different way than just, wow, that's so scary. I have to just pretend it's never going to happen. And it just creates crazy mental disease in my mind because I'm so afraid of that. That's basically the idea, Keter, general, and then Adam Kadmon, the specific total background that's bleeding into reality all the time. So you can think of it as reality is conscious. You are an aspect of that. You're constantly trying to bring everything to higher and higher and higher states of Hashem sort of like finding himself more and more and more. That's the overarching theme of existence. Every crisis is sort of like not really a crisis, it's just sort of just part of the path of swerving to get things far, further and further along on that path. And so the coronavirus situation is really just a part of that. And we're just not used to it because it's so gigantically different, right? Like just take the whole world from what it was to this was such a huge swerve for everyone at the same time that like it just being experienced on a much larger level, at least in our perceptions. But it's really, uh, it's just the same part of that same story. And uh, we'll see exactly where the story goes in the next chapter. But um, it's really just, it's just that same story. Okay, it's now 847. If anybody wants to leave, feel free to leave. That's basically what I'm going to say. There are questions. I see a couple of hands over here. If anybody um, is having a hard time with the hands, feel free to write things in the chat also. And I'll start with this hand, somebody named Sam Clark. First question was, why would Hashem actually do this to himself? In other words, why would Hashem punch himself in the face using the analogy of the Gemara or in any way kind of restrict himself, make himself forget who he is and then sort of put himself into the setting? What's the reason that Hashem would even do that? What, what would drive Hashem to do that? What's the motivation? What's the purpose? What's the goal of that? That's the first question. Okay, it's a great question. So um, first of all, I just, uh, I'm happy you quoted it the way I like to always say it. It makes me laugh every time I think about that imagery. There's also a number of other Gemaras that, that's really just referencing a concept called Simtsum. Simtsum means Hashem kind of like constricting himself and uh, that's the process of forgetting who he really is. There's a lot more to talk about with that. Um, your question as to why, why would Hashem do that? So I want to just, I'm not gonna be able to answer this super fully, but I'm gonna give you a little bit of direction in terms of how to think about it, which is there's two kinds of why in the Torah. Okay, so the first, I know you guys are laughing over there. It's making me very distracted. Um, the, uh, the, the two kinds of why, the one word for it is the word lama, and the other word is the word madua. So those two words are extremely distinct, okay? So I'll give you an analogy. One of my teachers, right, David Foreman, used to always say this analogy. I always love this. Um, he says, there's a guy named Thomas Edison who invented the light bulb. He's like, so you could ask, why did Thomas Edison invent the light bulb? Why did he do it? So he's always like, there's really two different kinds of why that you could be asking when you say that. One kind of why is you could be asking, well, why did he invent it? And you'll answer and say, in order to make light. That's why he invented the light bulb. Like, is there another answer? Like, that's the reason to make the light bulb, to make light. 
And then there's another answer, which is, well, he invented the light bulb because his mom always said to him that he's never going to amount to anything. He's never going to succeed. And he's just going to be a nobody. So in order to prove her wrong, he went and invented the light bulb. So you see how those are two very different kinds of answers? Like the first answer is what we would call lama in the Torah. Lama means lima. It means to what end? Like what is the purpose of this whole thing? Like where is this going? What's the point of it? So the, the lama of creating the light bulb was to make light. That's the point of it. Madua, though, is a, is a question of de'a. So you're trying to sort of know what's the, the behind. So lama is kind of like almost forward looking. Madua is like what came before. And so when you're asking why, you're, what you're really asking in the way that I experienced your question is you're sort of asking, well, why would Hashem, like what does Hashem need? What is he trying to get that he doesn't have? Or like what's kind of, what's behind this whole project? So I'm going to say something that's a gigantic, like this is again, this is like a two hour discussion by itself. But the short answer is that by, de not just by definition, like you could think of it as there is no such thing as that question. <laughs> Now, I don't just mean because we don't know it, we can't understand. I don't mean like that. I mean like literally, there is no such thing as that. So I'll, I'll just kind of give you one analogy to sort of hammer that home a little bit. Um, again, the Lama is what I just said this whole talk was about. Like, what's the purpose to, to unfold this you know, journey of, of remembering who he is, to sort of constantly express Hashem's capacity for process and progress that, that Hashem is truly endless. He can actually be completely you know, endless and infinite while also being totally... Um, process-oriented and finite going stage by stage, remembering, remembering, growing, changing. So Hashem can do both of those things, and that's where the side of things that is the changing process, you know, expansion side. But on the on the side of the Madua, there isn't one at all, and that's because this whole, you know, thing that we're experiencing was what we'll call a totally free um design. In other words, there was nothing that came before that in that sense. And we're just very attached to the question of Madua because since we live as process creatures, we have a, you know, a, we live in a series of stages through the phases of time that basically give us this, this experience and perception that there's one thing leading to another since we live that way. So we're always looking for what came before. And it's very hard to grasp the idea of complete freedom where there is nothing that motivates at all because the idea of motivation implies like a lack of something, and I'm trying to get that, and there isn't that with Hashem. There's a very uh, important medrash in Sefer Barashas, in Parshas Barashas, that says that when Hashem created existence, so it was like, there's four different parallels. It says that there's the, the way that Hashem sort of um, relates to existence is with the word of what's called tishuka. Tishuka is the word. Tishuka means like a need. That's how it's usually translated, a need. So it says, well, the way, when Hashem created existence, so like, you know, what, what's that like? It's like the tishuka that rain has for land. Hashem has that same tishuka for existence. And you're kind of like, oh, that makes sense. Like, you know, land needs rain. And so Hashem needs existence. But if you actually read the language that it says, it doesn't say that. It says the tishuka that the rain has for the land. So what it's saying is that the rain actually needs the land. And similarly, Hashem needs existence. That's how, if you translate the word tishuka as need. So what exactly does that mean? What is tishuka? So it's actually from the word nishika, which means to kiss, and from the word neshek, which is like a weapon, which is a point. Basically, it's, a, it's about points of contact. So a tishuka means, you could think of it as like um, a, a, a drive that's based on fullness. In other words, what rain is trying to do is it's trying to actualize something inside of the ground. It's like by expressing itself towards the ground, it, it overflows out of the sky, the ground starts to generate things, and the rain is now expressed through that. That is literally what we just described this whole shear. It was basically like Hashem is actualizing himself. He's literally raining down little seeds of himself, and then they grow up to be us. It's crazy. So that's that's what a tishuka actually is. It's, Hashem, it's like this, it's a bridge between like 
the overflowing um, source and then sort of like being actualized across the bridge on the other end in this process of reception. So that's what that metric is talking about. And it's very hard for us to even begin to grasp the idea of an overflowing source that doesn't have a beginning, that there is nothing like that. So I'll just give you one last experiential analogy for that also, which is if you try in your mind to go all the way up your thoughts to that place that I said, you know, where the place where your retzone is, and try to actually feel where your thoughts are coming from. You know, like right before they sort of come out, like where are they? There's like this, almost like this wall, and it's like, oh, thoughts just sort of come out of that wall. Like try to go to that wall, and then try to imagine what's behind that wall. So what you're doing is you're trying to access a non-thing existence with a thing-oriented mind. There's no way to do that. And it's kind of like if you, get to the, if you go to the very edge of the universe and the edge of space and try to think about what's outside of that, the idea of outside does not apply because outside is only a concept inside of space. Or if you try to go back in time to the beginning of time and say, well, if there's five seconds, let's say you're five seconds after the Big Bang, you say, let's go back 10 seconds now earlier to negative five seconds. Like you're, what was there before the Big Bang? What was there before time began? There's no such thing as that because you can't have the concept of before if we're not talking about within time. There's no such thing as the concept of before there. These things do not, they fall apart at that point. So the concept of Madua cannot be answered in a real way because Madua implies that you're taking a, a, a system-based way of thinking and applying it outside of the system, outside, right? Can't use the word outside. And it's something which just falls apart. Now, it doesn't mean you can't touch that a little bit. In fact, all my examples were designed just now to sort of make you feel the craziness of that. So you could a little bit touch the wow, like that's, that's the edge of, of, my, of my way of being. I can't even think about that. It makes me crazy to think that. So that's what's called imratz im, uh, libcha, if your heart starts to run. So shuv lamakom, it's a gemara and brachos, also quoted in the Efshachayim. When you start to go crazy like that, you go back to the, uh, to the, um, you know, the, the root of things. And we'll not explain what that means right now. But the point is a little bit of a taste of how to answer that. Hope that was not too crazy as a uh, tangent side point. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, sure. Um... Zoe, what's up? Next question is, so with this whole model of how Hashem is sort of playing the, the roles of all these different people in the world, and, we're, and each of us is sort of like a fragment or a fraction version of Hashem's self, uh, sort of searching for himself, really. Um, so how do you fit in people who are very evil, like Ted Bundy or Adolf Hitler, people like that? Um, these are very, very bad people. So how do they fit into the scheme of this if like that means that any person is sort of like, uh, an aspect of Hashem, how could somebody become like that if they're an aspect of Hashem at the same time? How does that work? Ah, see, this is the problem with talk, with giving a shear on like fundamental concepts. You end up getting the most fundamental types of questions. Each one requires its own talk. Um, okay, I'm going to do a short answer for this also. It's going to be like an attempt to do something crazy and it's like a three-minute thing, but your question is amazing, obviously. It's a great question. Um, the short answer is that what happens is a Ted Bundy-type person is a person where you have the examples that we gave where there are now is you start getting too attached to an aspect of your character, right? So let's just use Ted Bunny as an example. He got, he, again, we don't know this guy. I don't know exactly what was going on in his head, but let's just pick one nuance of what he did, right? Clearly a very sexually oriented set of mistakes and problems that he was making and, and, and then he would murder people. And so basically let's, let's, let's give a theory. Maybe he was very, very prominently in his mind, attaching his sense of identity to his sexual uh, experiences and sensations. And then whenever those things weren't being fulfilled in a way that he felt was fully who he was, then he started to feel like his life was empty and lacking. And then he would like lash out based on that and try to fix that in some way and try to make things different. So 
if you keep doing that repeatedly, see he had a particularly damaging way because that actually impacts other people's lives. But you can also do that in much smaller, less impactful ways. Like if you repeatedly relate to food, let's say you're using my wedding example. If you repeatedly relate to weddings as being gigantic food parties where there's also a couple getting married and, and the way they're getting married is whatever the concept of marriage is, you know, in the secular society, in the world, whatever people say, marriage is just two people who love each other just getting married. And we all know what that means without ever really thinking through what exactly is that. So the accumulation of repeating, repeatedly thinking that way, and you're sort of thickening the perceptions, the, the pair of glasses through which you're viewing the wedding concept. So over time, it gets more and more and more and more distorted until eventually you get to a point where like, it'll cause you to actually make really, really bad decisions. Like you might even get married in a very messed up way with a very messed up type of situation because of this repeated way of thinking. And these are not small effects. Like that's, you know, it seems like it's not a big deal, but it's like, People who have gone through that and then gotten, you know, divorced or whatever problems they have in their lives and their relationships, it comes from some combination of those kinds of distortions. So what that means is that the problem that I'm raising here, when you start to confuse who you are on a character level with who you really are, it leads to you making very, very incremental mistakes over time that eventually get expressed as gigantic problems, creates a crisis of some kind, and your life either falls apart or you have to kind of figure out how to fix it or get it back on track. So Ted Bundy and, you know, Adolf Hitler, Yamach uh, Shemo as an example, these are people who are famous to us because they did such intense, damaging things. But what they did was they just kept going on a path that was more and more and more distorted. It got more and more and more layered over time until eventually they were no longer able to even do that anymore. And then there's a, then there's a deeper question, which is like, well, if there's an aspect of Hashem manifest through every one of these characters, well, what happens to the aspect of Hashem that was like inside of a person like that that's linked to a Hitler body character or a Ted Bundy? And that's also a much longer discussion, which is also related to the death discussion. But the short answer to your question is that the, 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 the thing that you are, the real you, is endless and can never really be damaged by those types of choices. But the more the character takes over and you sort of allow your character to dominate who you really are and bring you more and more away from who you really are, the more existential angst you're going to feel, the more bad decisions you're going to make over time, the more you're going to damage yourself, and the more your life is going to start to give you red flags pushing you back away from that. And if you ignore those red flags, eventually you'll just stop being able to see them anymore, and then you're just kind of done, and then you turn into you know, kind of like a, uh, a bizarro version of yourself to use a random term if I can. Um, all right. Does that kind of, kind of answer that sort of. All right. Other questions, anything else? Okay. Izzy. Question number three. So how do we start even thinking about Torah in this way? In other words, to actually view, like, should we see everything that's going on as if it's Yisurin, like whatever's around us, whatever's happening to us is like, it's all kind of Hashem pushing us in this way. It's like to actually see the world as this um, ongoing story of Hashem sort of developing these things. So is there a way to actually see it like that more fully? Like how do we actually begin to perceive reality this way instead of just occasionally hearing about it or thinking about it a little bit? How do we transform towards that? Yes, so this is something which I get made fun of a lot because um, people... Uh, like to mock the fact that I, I think about a lot of things. Um, but the thing is, we all think about a lot of things all the time. It's just a question of what we're thinking about. And so I think that, you know, those three levels of Yisurin that I mentioned before, um, practicals and then thought level in terms of Torah and then just like general closeness to Hashem type of thing, the more you actually learn about these things in a deep way, the more you can make it that you don't actually even need Yisurin because like everything is Yisurin. Everything is, you're re you become receptive 
And things that happen in your regular life just become, you know, things that are cueing you and triggering you towards, you know, deeper development. So there's all, like in a lot of the Musser books, um, there's a famous one that I'm just thinking now where it's like, I think it's actually quoting from the Gemara. The Gemara says it, that if you take a coin out of your pocket and it's the wrong coin, that's Yisurin. And it's like, that's Yisurin? I mean, have you had a coronavirus? Like, what are you talking about? And it's like, yeah, it's Yisurin. Because like anything which gives you pause and is not the way that you expected it to be or kind of thought it should be for what you wanted is going to make you now choose between, well, there's what I want and there's what kind of like reality is going to give me and what reality kind of wants for me. And so in a superficial way, we sort of say this like, well, Hashem always does what's best for you or things like that. And that's not wrong. It's just that it's so shallow when you're lacking the context of the puzzle pieces. And then when you think about things in a fragmented way, just kind of like that, then it's like, it's very hard to think about this on a daily basis. You kind of have to work on it. Then you're like, I got to remember to think about like this thing is like Yisurin. And I got to, but when you learn this stuff and you're constantly like deepening your understanding of what Torah is about, then it just becomes built in. You know, there's no longer this like, there's just like you know, anything that you're into. If you're into like, a, you know, I use Netflix because it's a pretty easy one. If you're into a certain TV show, um, I'm just thinking now like on Shabbos meals when I go to someone's house for Shabbos. So like inevitably there's like, there's three categories of discussions. One of them is always food. It's always a food conversation. And it's like people get very detailed about it. There's a lot of detail about like what food they like, why they like it, where they get it from. The, the, my favorite one is always the shopping ones. Like where do you go to shop? And it's like there's directions being given. And I'm like, are we giving directions now? Like why? This is the most boring topic in the world to me. But like it just happens to be that I just don't like care about talking about food that much. I do talk about other things that are probably, you know, more random in other ways. But like food for me is like a very obvious one. So it's like, well, you're talking about it because you're thinking about it, because you're interested in it, because it's a big part of your 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 center in terms of sort of what you're what you're connecting with and focusing on. So what that means is like you got to sort of like I said before, you got to start thinking about like which parts of my character am I very attached to? And am I kind of experiencing as like very central to me? And then if you do that on a regular basis, you'll start to find very funny things about yourself. You start to be like, hey, like I really am interested in food. Like, or I'm really interested, like I, I really can analyze and talk about like a particular show on Netflix for like an hour and a half. And like, that's, and, and you gotta do that from a place, it's not about good and bad. It's not about like, what's wrong with you? Like you do that. It's about like understanding what it is that you think about. So that way you can actually be honest with yourself and then start to think, well, how do I genuinely become more interested in other things? Like, as opposed to like, just, and I'll finish with this, like, there's this point, like, there are some people who say things like, I remember there's a rabbi I knew a long time ago, who used to say things like, well, if you just work on it, eventually one day, maybe you'll actually really like Torah somewhat. You have to want, like, wish to want to aspire to hope that one day. And I'm like, that's so annoying. I don't want to wish to want to aspire that one day I'll love Torah. If I'm supposed to love Torah, like, shouldn't there be a way to do that? And there, I think I think there really is a way. I think a lot of it has to do with how you learn Torah and the kinds of concepts, how they're organized. And the Ramchal writes that explicitly in Derech Hashem. And the whole introduction is about that. When you learn Torah concepts in a way that is not integrating them and they're not organized in terms of how they fit together in, in their real connection side of things, how, like as if they're a puzzle. So you get like a little vort over here, a nice Dvar Torah over there. When you do that, it sucks the life out of it. You could read also Rav Kook in, in, in his Chachmas HaKodesh, in, uh, in Oros HaKodesh. The whole first section is about that. It's just like, like if you learn Torah in that way, it just makes it, it makes it dead. So I think these are ways to become more like that on a regular basis. And then, yeah, the answer to your question, I think, is yes. Like, you should do that. Um, but it, it does, it, like if, if it's like difficult, it means that something in the wiring and mechanics is probably not lined up properly because it should just be natural. It's like, well, if you're living in your life and you're fully alive in your life, then of course you're thinking about what, kind of like what your life is and how it's unfolding. Maybe not every second. 
want to take some breaks and like you know actually go watch the show on netflix that's fine but like the idea is to like on the whole be sort of aware of your life in a real way and sort of see the pieces as they fit together as opposed to just kind of checking in once in a while with your torah when you go to shul and you're now with a minion like this is my jewish time but then like after that's over you kind of you know go back to your real life which is like divided because it's secular and religious are viewed as divided another concept that is very unhealthy because it is both false and also damaging um yeah so i answer the question Okay. Um, any other questions? Max. Question number four was actually asked twice. It's going to be asked again in a few minutes. Um, the first time I didn't really answer it fully, but the question was, uh, what does coronavirus mean? In the big picture of history and the process of, of Hashem sort of doing this, like this particular series of events, uh, what, do, what do they mean uh, for the larger scheme of things? So we're going to try to address that again in a later question in a few minutes later. Uh, once again, very long answer to this um i'm not going to answer this really at so much length because it's also it's very um i would say it's very topical it's a great question obviously um but it kind of pulls our conversation now back into the specifics of this crisis obviously it's very interesting to us because we're the ones living through it so we're like what does this mean um but i think that first of all on the whole it's very important to keep the generalized clarity perspective going on so i want to just put that out there and say that um on a specific level um, it's very hard to say. I think it's very early to sort of know how this is going to really, like what this really is doing. I think we'll know a lot more when it's over. We'll sort of see what, what comes out of it. Um, but, you know, like as just one theory, maybe this is driving us towards preparation for an even bigger event that's going to come soon. You know, like one, one person said something to me about how, you know, there's a, there's a famous cataclysmic series of events called Gogu Magog that's supposed to maybe in some form, according to different opinions, unfold as we get to the phase of existence that we call Yemos Mashiach kind of trending into Olam Haba. Remember, Olam Haba is not heaven. It is not a place you go when you die. Olam Haba is here. You live forever. Um, that's something which is a longer discussion, obviously, by itself. Um, but the point is that, like, if this was like a prep event, sort of getting the world ready for a cataclysmic event that was coming up, so then that's one possible, that, that's, you know, it's an interesting theory. That could be, but who knows? There's no way to really know uh, what all this stuff means in that sense on the large scale. You are 100% correct that you have to think about it in terms of every individual and every family and every community and then all the inter you know connections and interpollinations of those different um variables and there's just so many different things here and so Hashem is very good at that because he's the source of all chachma and just like if you have a very active mind and are thinking about things you'll be like wow I can think about a few things and how they interconnect and it's like just imagine that times of I don't know a gazillion and then you're kind of getting to like a little bit of a fraction of an idea of a hint of a maybe of what Hashem could probably do but like but we're talking about like a situation that is so complex that uh, there's no way to really know how each of these pieces will play out. There's all kinds of theories um, and ideas, but I wouldn't really, um, I wouldn't weigh in on that because I think, at least for me, on the uh, on the idea level, I, I think it's more interesting for me to sort of see what happens than it is to imagine what might happen. Um, but uh, again, like we're all definitely wondering that. But my goal here was more to pull us back from that wondering a little bit and sort of realize this is part of a larger picture. If that kind of answers that. Anything else? Yes, Sam Mandel. Hello. Question number five. So how do we uh, reconcile or understand the role of people who are, quote, non-Jewish in this framework? In other words, what's the relation between a person who's Jewish and non-Jewish? And we're talking about Jewish people, but also you know, as being fragments of Hashem. But like, how do non-Jews sort of fit into that framework? Is there any way to understand the, the connection between those two different, seemingly different groups of people? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, unfortunately, also, we're looking at these... Uh, 
giant questions with, or seemingly small question with giant answers. Um, the concept of Jewishness, as it is currently culturally sort of like being discussed and described, unfortunately is kind of part of the historical framework circumstances that we are in. Um, we are actually not Jewish. Um, the concept of being Jewish means that you are from the Shevet of Yehuda, and we are called Yehudim in Megillus Esther. That's one of the first places where that term shows up. And that's something which is obviously great. We can all know that we're from Shevet Yehuda. It's a great thing. But we are actually all descendants of someone named Yisrael. I know you guys all know that. I'm saying it in a specifically kind of wacky way because I'm trying to shake up some of the perspectives people have a little bit. Because um, there's a whole backstory to that in the Chumash as to who we are, like what, like what this family is about. We're part of a family. And this family had a particular thing that it was doing. And that particular thing was like super important. And we have a very hard time even seeing that. I'll just give you one of the, of the obstacles to realizing what it is that your family is doing. Uh, you live in America. A lot of people who are in this uh, chat, you know, Sheer are, are in America right now. Um, America is like designed pretty much, I would say 90%, maybe even 95%, um, patterned after the way that our family sets, sets things up. In other words, like a country that is built on the idea that people's lives are endless, irreplaceable like fundamentally that's that's by far the most central and and you know um significant perspective shift that our family was responsible for i don't just mean responsible for like we made it happen i mean it was our responsibility to make sure that it was like that that's like what our job is and then you have like a country america that built itself on that and a number of other principles that are all interwoven with that that are all simply torah map principles so now you have a funny thing, because now you, you are part of a family that's been saying all those things, but everyone around you in this country also thinks that. Like, everyone in this country thinks it's, it's an obvious idea that, that human life is unique and special and irreplaceable. It's, like, built into everything in the country. I mean, that's how, like, the, all the property rights are literally written around that. So, like, the, the economics of the country, the interrelations of the country, like, the, the idea of financial rights, like, the whole country works that way. So when once that's going on, it creates a situation where like now it's very hard to sort of see you because everyone is kind of like the same as that. And you don't even remember anymore sort of like that. that it wasn't always like that. It's a circumstance of history. So as an example, um, if anyone here has ever heard, there's a, there's a set of books called The Game of Thrones. I know it's also became a popular show. I never saw the show, but I read a bunch of the books. It was something which someone gave to me and I, I, like, I happen to like reading um, different kinds of epic books. It's something which makes me, uh, I enjoy the interesting perspectives of the stories. This set of books, very, very, uh, I would say, I don't know if anyone here has read it, but like, I would say it's a little bit bizarre. Uh, it's bizarre because it's basically a world where there is no Torah. That's what the book is. Like, I think it was by accident. I don't think, I don't think the author was thinking like, let's write a book like that. But like in the books, there's, again, like the books aren't finished. So he's claiming, the author claims that like there will eventually be a purpose to the story. But basically the way the books work is everyone's constantly getting killed randomly and like, it's literally the most haphazard. There's no, there's no value of life. There's no value of, of relationships. It's like completely just wanton, like just depraved in so many ways. And it's just, you sense the emptiness in the space. And like, that's exactly what we were fighting against, like throughout history. That is what our family was about. Our family was trying to spread and, and win wars against people who thought that if, you know, a child is, uh, whatever, uh, born in a handicapped way, then we just throw it off a cliff. Like, our, we fought every one of those things throughout history again and again and again and again. That is who we are as, as a family. And so now we live in a time period where we're getting ready for Olam Haba. So the world is starting to build towards people are actually making themselves receptive 
to what we are really about. And soon there's going to be a person who's going to be the leader of that, and he's going to be what we call Mashiach, and that's going to be the next phase. But like, that's just, you know, it's just circumstantial. So when you learn the Torah, you understand sort of like the, the background of who you are, then you'll sort of understand what it means to be part of B'nai Israel, and then the story becomes very different because we're not like, people think, we're the chosen people, and that just means that we're just special and chosen. Don't know what that means, but we're like, that's not anything even remotely close to what it is. Like, we're not the chosen people in that sense. Like, we are, to, to, to be chosen always implies there's a larger context. You can't just be chosen in a vacuum. Like, you have to be chosen for something. So there has to be something about the context of the story there that's missing. And if you read the Chumash, it's in there. I mean, it literally writes it. But again, when we teach the Chumash in a very fragmented way, lots of sukkim sentences, Devar Torahs, and reading a lot of Rashi and and not really trying to understand the stories and then understanding what Rashi's adding to the story. So, of course, you lose sight of the thread of your family. So that's that's how it's start to answer that. And and I think that, you know, to understand what it means to really be part of B'nai Israel is a very important thing because, like, that journey is not over. And, like, it's not like a... And it's not a small thing at all. Now, it happens to be that certain, during certain time periods, you might feel less impelled to, to walk the journey. But I would just, just to sort of go back to what Izzy was asking before, it's actually the most important to invest in the story of your family when it is the least seemingly relevant. Because that's the time that it's like, now you have freedom to actually do that. When the crisis comes and now suddenly the world is not on, the on, on our family's team, and now they think that it is okay to, you know, throw people into gas chambers or whatever. So that's not the time to start investing in your perspective. Like, that's the time to, like, run. Or who knows what, you know, there's a lot of things to talk about what, what, what that was the time for. But, like, the, the idea was to sort of know who you are no matter what. There are many, many people during that time who actually still remembered who we were, and they went singing to the gas chambers, and it was obviously, again, to go back to our death conversation, super crazy what happened then, but we're looking at a lot of people who went through that and were like, I remember who I am, I remember who, what our family is about, and I'm going to fight this, like, hand over fist the entire way, and I'm going to never, ever, ever forget who I am throughout this this crazy situation where the entire world went the way of Game of Thrones and also the way of a Malik, which is the same thing. And I'm going to fight the emptiness no matter what. And even if I can't choose anything about my life, all I can choose is how I'm going to die. I'm going to go to die singing. And I'm going to not forget like who I am and what it means to be someone. So that's essentially what, you know, that's, that's one way to start describing what our family is. On a practical level, it's hard to really convey how to do this better just because a lot of it is learning oriented. You have to really, you have to read the Chumash and you have to read the Chumash like, you know, for real, which is hard to do because the trickiest thing about reading the Chumash for us now is because there's so many circumstantial ideas that kind of came from wherever we got them, you know, things that are more popular, famous ideas that we've heard in the Chumash, like, you know, uh, like we all, if you've read the Chumash, you've heard of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and so I, just as a random one, Avram has something to do with Midas HaChesed. It's a kind of a popular idea. Like, what is Chesed? You know, Chesed seems to be something to do with a brother and sister being physically intimate in Parshas Achremos. So what does that mean? You know, like, these are like basic questions to ask when you're reading the Chumash that like, we're not asking them because we already know. Chesed means loving kindness. So it's super easy to answer that, really. I feel like that doesn't solve the problem so well. Um, and that's that's true for the, all the stories. I mean, like sentence by sentence, I, I, like there's just so many things that, you know, are like, if you read the Chumash, just trying to follow what every sentence is adding, there are so many sentences you're like, why is the sentence even here? If you took it out, it wouldn't even matter. And there's paragraphs like that. I can show you a crazy paragraph in Parshas Vayishlach. No reason for it. Like, it's like 20, it's like 10, 12 sentences. That's just, it doesn't seem to have any place in the story. It doesn't seem to be necessary. If you took it out, you wouldn't miss it. It's the paragraph where at the end it says that, um, that Devorah dies, Menekes uh, Rivka. It's like a random paragraph, Parshas Vayishlach. You can look it up there. It's, a, it's the end of the paragraph. 
Um, it's like, and I have a whole like approach as to what it's about. I did an analysis to try to explain the theme of the paragraph to figure out why it's there. But like, I was like reading that. I'm like, why is this paragraph here? If you deleted it from the Chumash, it would not make a difference at all. And from the story that's there, it would not make a difference. And there's a million of those things. Like, what is Migdal Bavil? You notice that Avram only starts after Migdal Bavil. Before that, there were like a series of other people in a row. Each one was sort of leading up to things, and then they all failed. And then Avram was like the next phase. And, you know, just to sort of say it like this, the whole Chumash is actually a response to the story of the Garden of Eden. It's like the Eitzadas Tovara. A bunch of people over time tried to fix it. They all failed. And then the rest of the Chumash from Parshas Lechacha until the end is setting up a system, which is our family, that's designed to undo what happened in the Eitzadah story. Like, just as like a beginning, you know, like there's just so much to talk about there in the Chumash itself, but that's basically how I would start to answer that, if that kind of did something a little bit, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> All right. Okay, anything else? Any other questions? I could stay here as long as people want, obviously. We don't have to like uh, stop or continue. Nobody has to feel pressure to stay. Yeah, what's up, Yona? See if I can unmute you. Yeah, how are you? Question number six. So how do we uh, actually go about loosening our attachment to the types of perspectives that we're so used to? In other words, we have certain frameworks that we're just attached to, how we understand the world around us, how we experience things. So is there like a, a method that we can use to sort of really loosen our attachment to those kinds of perspectives and sort of move towards the, uh, the perspectives that we're talking about in this overall uh, class? Okay, so it's a great question. Uh, once again, brings us back to Izzy's comment um, in a particular way. So um, it's hard to do in the beginning just because um, there's so many different kinds of things that are, we get attached to in our perceptions. Um, but first of all, anytime you have like in your earlier development, like you guys are, you know, let's say you're, you're, you're earlier in your development than I am. So you're, you know, you're 19, 20, 20, 19 at this point, 19? Let's say, yeah. Um, so... Um, at this point, you're basically like you're you're going to have to use events like this to loosen your hold and try to learn things from what's happening. So that means that like when something happens, it's like, oh, wait, like I was so used to X and like now I don't have it anymore. This is a good example of something which now is like something which is clearly more part of that. You can also contrast those types of experiences with more learning of Torah concepts. And that also will like will really sort of leverage the growth process because when you get separated from things that you're used to, that obviously is useful for anyone. When you also then learn true things about existence, that's like it just turns the whole thing into a very intense uh, process because now you actually have true ideas to sort of supplant or fill in the gaps of the things that are that are going on. So that's what's called imain das ein bina. So like if you have das, if you have experiences from your life, that'll now give you like raw material to now be like, oh, this experience changed my way of thinking. And now I sort of saw how I was attached to one way of being, but this helped me see that it's actually different. And now I can have some Bina, in other words, some information where I can learn concepts and that will sort of upgrade me a little further. Now I can understand that in a new light. And then I need more experiences and that'll kind of bring it up even higher. And then I need even more Bina. And then it just keeps going like that. And as you get into this pattern of sort of processing your experiences the way Izzy was talking about, and then having more information as we we're talking about on the learning side, then you get into this like, you know, it's like a, a life spiral where you just start going higher and higher in that type of process. And it literally gets, I don't want to say out of control, but out of control in a certain kind of way. Um, and so that's that's really the best way to do that. Um, and if you don't have a coronavirus thing crisis to help you do that, it's actually not a bad idea to try to generate crises like that. I don't, I don't, I shouldn't say generate crises because it's a little bit of a harsh thing, but like to try to generate circumstances that will force you to grapple with things that you are not used to in some way. So, you know, some people do that with like 
they do like thrill-seeking. Thrill-seeking is kind of like a subcategory of that. Not always so good because sometimes thrill-seeking is kind of just this impulsive need to just sort of scratch an itch. I'm talking more about like deliberately accessing things that you're not comfortable doing and then doing them. So I remember I had a friend, actually she was on, the, she was on, this, uh, on this thing before. She once told me about this, I, this there's this uh, app that actually gives you like socially uncomfortable assignments like every day, like a different one. So it's like today you have to walk up to a person and like, I forget what it was, like ask them for directions, like something which is clearly like nowhere nearby. It's like, you know, like in Manhattan, like ask them for directions to Los Angeles, something ridiculous, you know, like, and every day there's like another assignment and they're like incremental and there's different categories. And like, you know, these are all different kinds of things. Now that's one option. I try to do these kinds of things for my kids, by the way, like, you know, whenever, or also with you guys, and anytime that I, that I teach people or, you know, hang out with students or whatever, I like to always say things that are what I call lateral thinking type things that are kind of unexpected. And then it's like, you know, like I'll, uh, like if I want to get a, a kid to get into a conversation with me, let's say a little kid, like, you know, my, even my little kids, I'll be like, oh, like, is that a potato? Just like ask them a random thing that just clearly makes no sense. And then they're like, that's not a potato. And it's like, there's, cause like that's such an, a weird thing to ask anybody that like, especially if it's not a potato, like if it is a potato, it kind of makes sense. But like, if it's not a potato, like it's just so bizarre that like it triggers them. They're like, wait, it doesn't make sense. Like, that's not what I'm used to. People don't usually do that. People usually ask me, oh, how are you? How was your day in school? And like kids never want to answer those questions because those are not interesting questions for them. So if you ask a kid something like, hey, is that a potato? They're like, no, you're a potato. And that immediately leads to like a very interesting conversation. So if you throw out these little things that make people think in that way, and I get made fun of for that for obvious reasons, <laughs> but like if you do that, then what you're doing is you're actually causing like friction and unfamiliarity to sort of come in, in very benign ways, do that enough, and then people start to actually learn how to think and like to, to sort of learn how to think on purpose more. Like they start to learn how to sort of separate themselves from things that they're used to and be like, hey, you know, I, a person could come up to me and just ask me if that's a potato like randomly. And if it's a little kid who's like eight years old, that's a really important thing to keep learning again and again and again. And then, you know, it goes to places like, oh, like um, let's say there's somebody that you want to date, right? And you're like, Oh, I can't go ask that person if they want to go out with me. Like I can like, you know, I, I, I've had students that said that to me, like, I could never do that. Like, yeah, no, what you really mean is you're not used to doing that. You've never done that. And so that idea for you is like completely foreign, but like that, that's the issue is like when you let things become that foreign, then you start getting attached to them to a point where now you can't separate from them. And then you start to have problems and you won't be able to, to go out with a person that you want to go out with. And now you're going to be alone from that person. Maybe you should be with that person. That's going to be the development of a crisis. So it's, it, it basically requires incremental smart ways to try to challenge yourself and the more you challenge yourself you know on purpose then the less often reality will challenge you directly and kind of makes things a little bit more uh benign maybe is the right word that's kind of incrementally less benign but over time it's kind of more benign so that's how i would answer that yeah anything else and then back to the question that was mentioned earlier so what does this mean this whole coronavirus concept and situation and if we actually try to focus in on it a little more deeply, try to understand what is the purpose of this series of events, like the specifics that we're in right now, not just the general big picture, but the specific event of the coronavirus. Um, how do we, how should we be thinking about it in terms of what it means for us and for people and for Hashem uh, in, a, in a more specific type of way? I don't think anything really. I think what I said, like I think Hashem is doing something and our job is to sort of see where it goes. I, what I, I can tell you what I want it to mean. I want it to mean that people, that people are starting to, kind of really assess exactly what Yona was just asking about. You know, that's why like a lot of the discussions are about um, going to shul, for example. You know, people are trying to make minyanim. And it's like, I, I don't really think that's really what we should be doing right now. I think that if you think about what a minyan is, like I would say on the whole, I don't know almost any people 
that could actually ex explain what a minion is. So it's like, well, like, so I can tell you what a minion seems to be in terms of the societal, um, cultural side of it, which is like a minion seems to be a way for us to feel like we're doing something Jewish with other people and then sort of like capitalizing on the social interaction. So like, and also obviously there's a lot there and you could see that that's clearly a big part of it based on how much we talk during minion, right? Like that's clearly a big part of it. And what I think a lot of rabbis are, are struggling with is sort of, they, they just tell people off and they call that out and they'll say, oh, it's so bad, you shouldn't do that, it's not halachic, or like, like we should focus on tefillah, and they're not wrong. It's just the problem is that like people's fundamental perception of what minion is, is so far from what it actually is, that like there's no way for them to access a headspace like that. So like, like what I would like to see happen from all this is that people actually get more truthful perspectives of their relationship with Torah. So like, for example, the way a minion is supposed to work is it's supposed to be 95% you and 5% the crowd which means that you're supposed to be having a very intense tefillah experience whenever you're engaging in tefillah. So like, that's just a general thing. And then when you add, like same way with the marriage example from before, when you suddenly have another person that you add to your power of connection, and suddenly you have all these other consciousness fragments around you, and you realize, wait, we're all kind of part of this crazy consciousness experience where we're now going to be connecting to Hashem and deeply remembering who we are and that we're aspects of this larger self all together. That's like a very augmenting type of experience to share that with a lot of other people, like super intense. But like, and if you use the sitter to do that with the words that are in there, I mean, those words are like, it's like, a, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a lightning bolt. But again, you have to know what the words mean. You have to understand that what they're for and experience some of what I just said a little bit on your own or even significantly on your own to even begin to plug into the power of what that is. So instead, what we're doing is we are putting all the emphasis on the, on the group and we're saying, well, if you come to Minion, so now you're going to feel like you're doing the right thing. You're being religious. You're being from because you're showing up for Minion. You're not sleeping in. You're not lazy. You're not going off the derech. And it's the polar opposite of what it really is. Like you shouldn't be using the Minion to feel like you're being connected to Hashem. You should be connected to Hashem and then use the Minion to augment that. And if you do the other way, which is what we're doing, I think, on the whole, you're, you're going to destroy what Minion is. And that's what exactly what we're seeing. So comes Hashem and says, well, now there's no more Minion. Now what are you going to do? So, what are, so what, are the, what are the options? We could do a Zoom Minion. I cannot think of anything which is more undermining of like what, what's going on here than a Zoom Minion. Like it's, the, it's again, and I feel a little bad saying this. I think if people really miss Minion because of the social side and, the, and they're just used to it. But like a Zoom Minion, is, it, it, it loses everything. Like A, it's not a Minion. So you don't even get the actual minion side of the conscious connection of being with each other. Just like you all feel that there's a certain distance because we're not really in person. This could be a dialogue that, that could be taking place. You know, if we were in a sheer room together, then we'd just be hanging out until 1030 at night. It's, very, it's different. This is still better than nothing, but it's not the same thing as being there together with each other. So you're, you're losing that, but you're pretending like you have that. It's like the ultimate. You're like, I'm pretending that I have a minion and I'm going to use it for the wrong thing even now. So like the, the, the antidote to that is, to like stay home and like learn the sitter. Like this is the time. Everyone always says, I don't have time to learn the sitter because I'm always in davening and I'm davening then. You don't have time not to learn the sitter. This is the time to learn that. So like you sit at home and you do, you, you do, you could do your tefillah that you do, you know, whatever, however way you do it. And then take like 10 minutes of the time that you would have spent during because there was a shots, you know, spacing out or being on your phone, like read the sitter and like learn it and figure out what the word baruch means because what the heck, it's a pretty weird word. And then the word atah, because like that's also a pretty weird word. And then you know the word yudkevavke is like a really, really crazy word. And so like these are all things that can be understood. They just need to be actually understood. So that's uh, what I would like to see happen from this. I think that there's a lot of things in the Torah space that are being very undervalued and have been for quite some time. And Hashem is kind of forcing us to grapple with that. And I would like to see people really kind of upgrading their relationship with these things in a very intense way. 
And so that's actually just also just, you know, I didn't plug this my website when, when I had 32 people here, but like my website is supposed to be something that's designed to help with that. Cause it's like, here's all this content. And like, now you can actually start to learn these things and, and then use them. And now people are kind of primed for it. So I'm really rushing to get it out there in the next couple of weeks, just because there's just so much like need for people to do that now. And I think that it's very easy to sort of just, you know, in a mediocre way to sort of cruise through this event and hopefully nothing too bad happens. And this, you know, winds down pretty quickly, but like, um, you know, to sort of cruise through and just um, not do any of the work I just described, but that's really what I would like to see happen. I think that if we do see that happen, that will be a huge game changer. And I think that's like, we're setting that, that would set the stage for Mashiach if we did that. Now, how long will that take for the, for the person to show up and for people to get to a point of consciousness that, that the person can show up? Like, I don't know. But like if we if we use it as a pathway to that, that's what I think uh, is going to be the most, you know, positive outcome from all of this. That's what I would say. Again, will that actually happen? I have no idea. That's what I would want. Yeah, Izzy. Question number seven. So how do we um, sort of balance experience and knowledge? In other words, clearly, um, to, like having life experiences and Yisurin is something which is very important in the process of sort of um, growing and, and, and uncovering and developing and evolving Hashem's consciousness in the world through us. But how do you kind of balance the experience side versus the knowledge side, like learning more things? Is there is there a way to sort of do that consistently to have the knowledge and the experience? Or is it more experience? Is it more knowledge? How do we sort of view those two things in, in concert with each other? So it's, it's super easy to answer. The answer is yes. Um, it's really the same thing as before, right? Like we mentioned the um, the uh, Das and Vina dichotomy from Perkeavos. Like that's there is no answer to your question besides just yes. In other words, like unfortunately, um, as we still have these Das Tovara type bodies, which are going to sort of get upgraded over time towards the Mosa Mashiach, which is happening now to a certain degree, um, we have the capacity for distorted ways of being, like we already mentioned. So one of the ways that plays out is that you'll have like, a jump start of some das. Well, I did das this time, this way before, so let's just keep it consistent. Some das, and then like a little bit of bina, which is like, oh wow, cool. And then it's like this kind of falls down. You forget some things you experience. There's like a big jump in bina because like maybe you learn something really crazy, but like you don't really know how to apply it. And you have a crazy experience like a year later, and you're like, oh, that was this. Like that really fits. So it's a little haphazard, but you want to try to keep you know keep it as together as you can by consistently having experiences that are somewhat you know real and try to keep, try to become authentic with your experiences and be honest with yourself, like what you're feeling and why, and then kind of parallel that with enough Bina that you're learning along the way. And that's why we're supposed to always learn some Torah every day. So we can, you know, and we'll never know which piece of Torah is going to be relevant when. So I just, you know, you just learn straight, you learn the Gemara, you learn whatever you're learning and like, you just keep going and you store away whatever you learn. And at some point, something you'll experience will dovetail with that. And sometimes it won't. And you just keep on, you know, having some level of haphazardness in that, but like, that's, that there's no there's no um, one right answer to that because both of them are extremely important and they're they're not just important they're required like they are the necessary ingredients for the process so in this particular situation there's obviously a plenty of supplied experience so it's kind of convenient in that way you don't need to do that much um, in terms of the experience side it's more just like let me now sort of um, overdrive a little bit my my thinking to understand or process sort of what I'm experiencing and what I can do with that like in what way have, have things been different now that I'm not even aware of because I'm so used to, you know, let's say the minion example is very obvious. So it's like, everyone knows that one, but like, there's so many other little things that, you know, we're, uh, we're not used to, you know, like yesterday I went to get gas and, um, the gas station attendant asked if he could take, like I had a box of tissues in the, in the passenger seat and he asked if he could take a tissue and I was like, sure. And then I was like, that was actually a pretty big deal because like, like if his nose is running, 
and he just reached into my car and like, does that matter? And like, I don't know. And so, and again, I like, you know, I trust Hashem. I don't, I hopefully nothing bad comes from that and whatever, but like, that's a whole thought process that suddenly happened that never would have happened before. So like, there's plenty, literally thousands of permutations of different things like that. You know, I went to FedEx today, same thing. You know, it's like, uh, I use their pen. I'm like, should I be thinking about that? Like, you know, the doors are wide open. Everyone's wearing gloves, but like, I don't like, you're obviously touching your face when you wear gloves. So I don't know. Um, there's a lot of a lot of experiences here that are going on and ways to process them and think about them. Some of them are kind of, those two examples are kind of um, the same one in some ways, um, but there's plenty of other ones that are more diverse besides that that are also more Torah related, I would say. So, all right, yeah, Max. The next question was, in a minion, when you have a group of people together that are engaging in tefillah, so why is it specifically 10 people? Why does it be 10 um, different people, 10 men specifically, but question was more focused on why the number 10 uh, in order to create a minion at all. What, what, is that, what does that number even mean? Mm, that's a great question. Well, I'll give you a little hint, okay? All the 10s in Chazal are always connected. Not connected, they're the same 10. So basically, you could think of it as... Say again, sorry. Uh, yeah, so the short answer to your question is that... Uh, you could think of it as, you know, there's... Um, there's... What's a good way to say this? Okay, it's going to be too long. I'll do a short thing. The short answer is that the ten, like that, the whole process of Hashem sort of translating Himself into what we experience as ourselves has ten layers, or we'll call it ten primary layers. Each of those ten layers can be broken down into ten sublayers, and each of those can be broken down into ten sublayers, and you can go down. It's tens all the way down, and it's really infinite. There's an inf there's, a, there's a, an endless what's called hishtalshalos of Hashem Self all the way to eventually become you. So, but basically. Anytime there's a process that is trying to un uncover the Hashemness pockets that are buried inside of us that we are aspects of, so you're always going to use, like, you could think of it as, like, a door, and the door has, like, ten different pieces to it to open it, and you need all ten of those pieces to open the door to the next layer. So it's like in a game. So that's basically what you're doing. So each of those ten pieces, you know what the pieces are, I assume. Keter is one of them, then Chachma and Bina, and then you have Chesed and Gvura and Tiferes, and these are all terms that, you know, people like to translate as loving-kindness and strength or whatever Gvura is. I don't remember what that is anymore. And dominance and, and um, what's Malchus? Majesty? Something like that. I don't know. Um, all these words in English mean nothing, obviously. Um, but these things are very, very profound concepts. And when you have ten people together, then the idea is that, like, there's enough... Um, What's the word for that? Not homogenization, kind of like the opposite of that. You have enough variety in the consciousness fragments that you're going to have a piece of each of those at relative levels of prominence. So if one person is like more a like has a prominence of chesed and a prominence of malchus, another person has a prominence of gvura and a prominence of das, and like you have 10 people, so like the various prominences will eventually kind of meld and complement each other, and you'll have all the 10 pieces you need for consciousness release and conscious expansion. Of course, you have to know what the words are and then say them together and yada 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 but that's the 10 10 10 puzzle pieces to the doorway it's like in the matrix you know there's like two keys i think is that a thing i get that right there's like a door with a bunch of keys and like so just think 10 keys 10 very different keys so yeah and then the last question is so um Will science sort of eventually catch up with this, or will science eventually or also reveal the same ideas that we're talking about here? Uh, can we expect that this is something which is going to become kind of just part of how we understand reality? In other words, if this is real and true, 
So like, will science corroborate this? Will consciousness be something which eventually is part of a scientific framework in some kind of consistent, um, coherent sort of way? Of course, because let, let's, uh, yeah, there it is. That's right, represent. Um, that's exactly what he's saying. You know, there was Rav Cook, like knew that, like basically this, you know, this, this is something I talk about all the time. Like if the Torah is actually real, then like it's real. It's not like a, it's not like a quasi real. So if you are actually an endless consciousness cell fragment that is manifest through a physical body, well, then you are. So Rav Cook really, really, really intuited that that, that that was real. Like he lived that in a very intense way and plenty of other, you know, a lot of people did. And, you know, a lot of what I try to teach is sort of show people how to do that. Um, because I think it's a way more fun way than, you know, the other ways um, without getting too intense about that. So, um, but the point is that like, that yes, I think that there will be a scientific side to that. Um, but science today uses a very particular set of tools. They use tools that are all BINA-oriented tools. BINA-oriented tools means tools that focus on extrapolative thought that is measurable. So, you know, if you look at like brain analysis now, so we think that we know some things about the brain, but if you like, you'll, you'll read different accounts of different neuroscientists. Some people are like, we know a lot about the brain. Some people are like, we know very little about the brain. Some people are like, we know nothing about the brain. So I'm gonna just sort of just briefly for a second, just put that into perspective. Um, the brain is a conglomeration of cells that all interact electronically and there's trillions of them and that's all very fun and good. But if you think about that, that's such a small amount of information just because like the cellular level of biology is, is like a joke because it basically all comes, if you know anything about biology, it comes out of com like the complexity of biology comes out of the interaction of forces essentially the electromagnetic force and the nuclear small force and the, and the weak force. So it's like, these are the, these are the three out of the four forces. The fourth one is gravity. So like by having those four forces interact, they basically create little clumps of energy that turn that we call what we call matter. And they all start to dance with each other according to the rules of the different forces. And so if you have too many clumps and it creates this kind of element, which has these kinds of properties and that forms and that attracts other elements of other properties and it creates molecules and these all turn into what we experience as biology. So like everyone has a very fun time with that. We spend a lot of time focusing on that. It's a very reductionist microbiological orientation where it's like, let's understand these little pieces and how they all work together. And it's all well and good. The tricky part about that is that you'll notice there's like a gigantic, huge elephant in the room there, which is the forces. Like the actual, what gives the, the different molecular elements different properties is the forces themselves. And in the scientific world, no one knows what those things are. We don't know what the forces are. They're completely intangible. We do not know what electricity is. We, we see it, we use it. We have no idea what it actually is. So all the forces work that way. We don't know what gravity is. We don't know what electromagnetic, like none of those things. So once we don't know what those things are and they are by far the most defining elements of the system that we are trying to understand about our bodies. So like we actually know very little. So now what that means is like, if you'll notice the forces, the, re the problem with them is they are not um, able to be accessed with BINA. They are non-BINA things. They're not measurable in that way. So that means that the doorway towards the parts that are behind, you know, parts that are behind, um, AKA the consciousness space of things, you have to look in a different direction. So that direction is an interesting direction to try to figure out where that is, but there are a lot of scientists who are on board with this. It's called the hard problem of consciousness. People are trying to figure out what this is because we know it's, it's something. We, some people just think it's an illusion, but we have no data. Because once you don't know what the forces are, then you have no way of understanding what consciousness is. Because con if, if you want to claim that consciousness just is something which is a product of the brain, which people can claim, it's totally fine. Well, if you don't know what the brain is, 
then it means nothing. Like you're saying a non-statement by saying that, because if consciousness arises from the from the brain, well, and the brain comes from something which is completely intangible, so then consciousness comes from something which is completely intangible. So there's no way to avoid the problem here by just saying it just comes from the brain. Like we don't know what that is. So anyway, you slice it, you're going to run into these kinds of problems, and the only way to get past that is to try to change our tools and upgrade them to look in a completely unfamiliar place, because science, just like everything else, works with the same properties of this whole shear, which is that people tend to think in ways that are familiar. Familiar. They then use those ways to assess whatever data they're trying to study. And if you're a scientist, you're whatever. That's why scientists, it's very famously, um, um, you know, not, what's the word? Not categorized, um, you know, modeled and very famously known that scientists tend to think in clumps. So like physicists until 19, whatever, 12 or 1905, maybe it was, um, all thought the same way. At a certain point, they kind of all got together and decided, okay, we figured out all of physics. We know all of it. We got it down and we figured it out. And then there's a guy named Albert Einstein who just came and was like, oh, whoops, here, you missed all of this. And now physics is the biggest mystery of all of science. Like, we do not know anything in physics. Like, and we're getting more and more confused as time passes. And there was a time when people thought we had it completely figured out in, in the early 1900s, late 1800s. That's what we thought. Like, you could read all about it. It's crazy. So it's like, that's the same type of phenomenon. People get very used to certain ways of thinking and they have a very hard time switching over yeah, at some point they're going to figure it out. That's all I was trying to say. If it's real, then it's real. And it seems like like anyone who thinks that we are that we finished and we figured it out at this point uh, has not really been following what's going on in the science field because uh, we really like this is this is the direction, the direction towards the world of Chachma, which is the intangible space of knowledge, is where everything is going to be heading now. And uh, we are we're doing that. I mean, we're building like a very like the whole digital space is intangible in a lot of ways. So we're we're sort of clearing up the attachment to tangible thinking and going towards more of the intangible direction. And so I think that we'll see that at some point that really goes there, but who knows?